0: privilege to be preaching the first sermon of 2013 not only is it the first sermon of 2013 uh, but it's the first series of 2013 and the first series that Rick and I will do together through an entire book so we haven't done that yet uh, so I look forward to doing it and today we begin book of Philippians Uh, so if you have your Bibles please turn there now the book of Philippians this week so today we'll be looking at chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 Um, I'll give you some brief background on the book of Philippians. It was written by the Apostle Paul. So right there, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, because they were together, as we're going to see a little bit later. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, and overseers, that's basically a pastor. Pastor, overseers, elders, those are the same words used for the same office, or different words used for the same office. And the deacons, he says. So he's basically writing to the whole entire church. Um it most people think that the book was written around AD sixty two, so you're looking at three years before Paul is executed. And he's writing this letter from some sort of jail or some sort of house arrest. So right there is fascinating. You get to see a little bit of this portrait, a portrait of this man. What are his priorities? What are his purposes, right? What is he going to write? What would you write to your family, to your friends, if you all were incarcerated? And I think it presents this living picture here of this man, this apostle. And um, how you want to read these letters, if you're not familiar with reading them, um, most letters are written to a specific situation, a particular situation. So if you're going to write to your family friends, you are going to write asking them about how their life is at that given moment. And probably going to ask them about the things that you know about them. So I might ask my dad or my sister who are back there, you know, how's their particular job doing. And I might even tell them about my particular situation as well. So as we read the book, as you're reading it through your devotions, you can kind of, like a detective, gather information about what was going on during the time. Um, Rick obviously knows all about detective work. It would be fascinating to... You know, to have you work through this with us. So that's the book of Philippians. And I'll go ahead and read chapter one, verses one to eleven. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So from this passage this morning, we look at this relationship that they have, and we look at Christian partnership specifically five aspects of Christian partnership. So that's sort of like the main heading, five aspects of Christian partnership. If you're taking notes, you want to write that down. Aurora is very faithful at taking notes. Um, So the first point, the first aspect of Christian partnership is that it is joy producing. Christian partnership is joy producing. Look there in verse three, he writes, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, those of you who might, who are familiar with Paul's letters, this is somewhat of a typical introduction and greeting. He thanks God. That's pretty typical of what Paul does. And then he goes on. And he moves towards a prayer. And actually, in very, very many ways, this thankfulness that here that he's stating is a prayer. But just because he does that normally in his in his uh, letters doesn't mean that he doesn't mean it. So he does actually mean it. Paul is genuinely thankful. So there, it's like you got the content of the prayers. I thank my God. He says that's the content and then you got the frequency he thanks his god always in every prayer of mine for you all so there you got the content you got the frequency of the prayers and then you got the manner he 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 thanks his god always in every prayer and with joy because of their partnership with him so in my meditation on this passage it it caused me to sort of stop and wonder you know wow these philippian christians man they must be something whatever whatever they're doing for paul which we're going to look at it 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 causes him to well up with thanksgiving every time he remembers them and he does so with joy that's sort of like the, the the main caveat there that's the emphasis he thanks god with joy when he thinks about these people and it made me stop and think about oh man i wonder what the christians that i partner with first baptist church when you guys think about my partnering with you and my serving you, what, what actually wells up in your mind? And, and we all should be asking that question, too. You know? So what do our Christian friends think of us as we labor with them for their faith? Do our Christian friends think, oh, you know what? You know, that Jeremy guy, is he a little self-centered in his partnership? Does he come and he wants to consume off of you all? Or does he actually provide for you? Is he, is he a pain when you all pray for me? Do you pray, oh man, I really just wish Jeremy would do X, Y, and Z. Or, or What are those that you guys, what are those prayers um, that people are praying for you? What might they be about as you are relating with one another? I mean, these Philippians, man, they're something. They, and they genuinely mean something to him. Because they go back far. So you look at that, look at there, verse 5. He thanks God with joy in every remembrance because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So there, that first day, what he's talking about is he's recalling these wonderful memories when the Lord used him to bring the gospel to Philippi. And that takes place in Acts 16. So later on in the afternoon, you all can read Acts 16 and see what happens there. He's thinking about when he, by God's grace, brought the gospel to Philippi. And he saw their lives change. He saw them actually turn from what they were doing to embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. So um, you guys remember the woman named Lydia in Acts 16. She's a businesswoman, a dealer in purple goods, clothing, uh, fabric there. It says there in Acts 16 that the Lord opened her heart to believe what the Apostle Paul said. Because the Apostle Paul was evangelizing her. So God is doing this amazing work in her life. And in the very next story, Paul's, Paul here is walking along and this demon-possessed slave girl is talking about how Paul has come to bring the good news of Jesus Christ. And eventually Paul heals her, casts out the demon. Um, so presumably there, hopefully, we would think that that girl would believe. So you've got this businesswoman who's converting. You've got this demon-possessed slave girl who's healed because of the power of the gospel. And then eventually Paul is sent to jail. Paul and Timothy are sent to jail. And there, who's converted? The Philippian jailer. So what happens is Paul and Titus, they get locked up. They're doing time. And it says there in Acts 16 that while they're in prison, they're singing hymns to God. And all the other prisoners are listening. And then the jailer, uh, well, eventually an earthquake happens. The doors are flung open of the jail. Uh, The jailer's so freaked out because he thinks the prisoners have escaped. And now they're going to come down on me, the authorities. And they're going to hold me accountable for it. And he's about to kill himself. But then eventually Paul says, don't worry, we're all still here. And in fact, not only are we here, we're singing the hymns of God while we're here. And then he falls down on his face and says, what can I do to be saved? And later on, Paul and Timothy take him and his whole household, baptize them. They all believe. Um, So here you have this fascinating mix of people from different areas of life, different socioeconomic classes. You got a demon-possessed slave girl. You got a Philippian jailer gentile greek there were a lot of military folks in philippi in fact um so he was probably a connected guy uh and then you have this businesswoman so you got a businesswoman demon possessed slave girl and then you got this gentile jailer how's that for a uh, church planting team that's an awesome team um so he's recalling when that church came together by the grace of god through his proclamation of the gospel and he says that you have been partnered with me from the first day until now. He explains a little bit more about this partnership. If you go there um, and uh, you look over and look at chapter 4 and you see more of what this partnership is like. 4 verse 14 and 15. 15 in particular And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, that is financial giving and receiving, except you only. He says, even in Thessalonica, which is Acts 17, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. And then in 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So there at the very least, he's looking at three times of help from the Philippian church. And that's some of the ways in which that they have partnered with him in the gospel. And then you turn back to chapter one. He says there in verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So not only is people helping financially, everywhere he goes, whether in prison or out of prison, they're partnered with him wherever he goes. And in fact, whatever he does. So look there in my imprisonment and In the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Wherever I go. You guys are partnered with me. And whatever I do for the gospel. You all have my back. You guys are all there. And it's this partnership that brought joy to Paul. But it's not strictly because of the fact that they partnered together. You know like a mere human partnership. You know it's not like. It's not merely because they've. They've bailed him out when he's in need. Not merely because they're showing him love. And he's showing them love. That's not really um, what brings him joy. And I think the next point makes this clear. The second aspect of Christian partnership is that it ought to be, hopefully it is necessarily, Christ-exalting. So point number two, the second aspect of Christian partnership, it is Christ-exalting. We see that they aren't partnered merely because of a shared friendship or ethnicity or whatever but it's because of the gospel. And that's what actually brings joy to him. It is a gospel partnership. So if you look there in verse 4, he thanks his God always in every prayer of his, making his prayers with joy because, did you notice there, of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then go down to verse 7 again. He says that you all are partakers with me of grace. That is an unmerited gift, a free gift, one that can't be worked for. And they partnered with him in defense and confirmation of the gospel. So there he's getting really specific in terms of what this partnership is actually based in. This is a partnership in Christ, who he is, what he has done, what he calls us all to do. So here... As I mentioned in the past, Christ is the aim and the end of the Christian right here. Christ is the aim and end of the Christian. So his purposes, his priorities, they become the Christians. And that's what it means to partner together ultimately with God. The word partner there can also be translated as fellowship. First John says that if you have fellowship with God, his purposes and his priorities become the Christians. If not then you actually don't have fellowship with God and then fellowship with others. So here as he expresses this, it's almost like he's saying, nothing would bring me greater joy than to see this happening, you partnering with me in the gospel. So you see how that's bringing him joy? It's a, you can think about it this way. Um, imagine coming from an intact family. I mean, Many, many of us come from um, broken families dysfunctional families I mean, to, to some degree we're all we all come from dysfunctional families because we 're all sinners but imagine coming from a perfect family you you and your sibling and you know your father you know that your father is the most compassionate the most gentle the most kind hearted father there ever is ever would be so much so that even when he disciplines you you 're so confident all the time of the fact that what he wants is more of your heart and not merely mere obedience. That's the kind of father you have. And then one day, your sibling, he actually begins to say, you know what, I'm going to get out of here. I don't really like that. I'm going to take my stuff and I'm going to go ahead and go. I'm going to leave. And you see him wandering away. You see him with the wrong priorities. And eventually he's lost. And you go reach out to him. And then he actually wants to come back. But he thinks, oh, you know what? If I go back, dad's going to kill me. I got all this guilt. I feel so shameful. I can't show my face to dad, whom I've left. I've actually run away. And you know the truth about your father. You know that your dad, in your brother's weakness, will show great compassion. You know that your dad, without doubt, in your brother's guilt and shame, is going to reconcile completely. He's going to forgive, he's going to be gentle. And so imagine one day you actually see your sibling turn and he leaves his ways and to go back to his father, recognizing who he is. Would that not bring you joy to see your sibling do that? That's kind of what it's like for Paul. Paul sees the Christians, he sees them turn from sin, once being hostile uh, to God and then going towards their creator God. And he can't help but be so joyful to see that actually happening. These people returning to their creator and their God, living the very lives that God desires them to live. And so it's not not only, only does it bring Paul joy, but it's also a wonderful celebration of the character of the Father, is it not? And so that's what brings him joy. That's a gospel partnership there. It underscores the fact that we as a church, you know, there's nothing that binds us together apart from Christ. So ultimately, we're not a social club. We're not bound by ethnicity. We're not bound by hobby. But we are, in fact, bound by Jesus Christ and the gospel. So that's what this church ought to be preaching. And every church here in Hacienda Heights ought to be preaching this wonderful gospel that shows that Jesus Christ is. God himself can have fellowship with man if we would repent and believe. And that's the good news. Good news. The gospel means good news. That is that all of his creation, that is you and I, he created us to worship him, but we have rebelled against him, turned away like the sibling. We've left our father. And in fact, not only have we left, but it says that we stand hostile to God. It says in the book of Romans, hostile towards God without the spirit. But where there is a problem, God then provides the solution in his son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh to pay the price we deserve, to bear the wrath that we deserved, So that everyone who repents and believes and believes in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross and who he is, then is forgiven. Like that son who returns to the father. Forgiven, shown compassion, is reconciled can know the father actually and have fellowship with him his aims his purposes his priorities become that christians that's the gospel that this church should be preaching and i think does preach and so as we work in application for our church we want to be a church that is grounded in the gospel it says in james that the word gives birth to us the word of god So we want to be grounded in that word. We never want to move away from it. We want to remain rooted in it like that man in Psalm 1 who plants his root deep next to that life nutritious water.
1: But not only are we
0: grounded in the gospel, we also want to be growing in the gospel. So you can think of it like a plant, right? The plant is planted in the rich nutritious soil. And for it to live, it needs to stay in the soil and it grows from it. Um, Unfortunately, there are some people who say that the gospel is only for the new believer. And then once you sort of graduate from that new believing stage, you, you don't really need the gospel anymore. You can sort of move on from it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not something you move away from. It's something that you press deeper into. And as you press deeper into it, you see the gospel changing various aspects of your life. So you can take you know, faithfulness to parent your child when you don't want to do that or faithfulness to love your your whoever your neighbors your mother your siblings when you don't want to do that as a christian where do you get help to do that the gospel actually has to say something says something about even something like that like the, the, the daily nitty-gritty stuff i can look at the faithfulness of jesus christ who in isaiah it says that jesus christ set his face like a stone to the cross um actually says that in luke quoting isaiah so he's so faithful he doesn't turn to the left or to the right but dies on the cross for those he loves he, he 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 doesn't flirt with oh you know what, maybe i don't really love these people maybe i'm just gonna go ahead and do this other thing over here he goes he's dead set to die on the cross for those he loves and so for me as a father and, and hopefully for you all as a father we can look to the faithfulness of jesus christ and say just as god was faithful so I then want to be faithful. I pray, Lord, make me faithful. If you're thinking about how do, you, how do you love your spouse, even when they're hard to love, your girlfriend, whoever, think of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So as you press deeper into the gospel, the gospel actually affects all aspects of our life. So we want to be a church that's grounded in the gospel. We want to be a church who is, that is growing in the gospel. But then we're also called to be sowers of that seed, right? We, we, are, we want to be a church that is sent with the gospel. We, we want to be a church that is sent with the gospel. We are called to go out and to share the gospel with those all around us and really to affect the community with the gospel. I mean, can you imagine we, us preaching the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to, let's say, City of Industry? <coughs> For some reason, the City of Industry has a tremendous amount of strip clubs and things like that. It's, it's highly unusual uh, if compared to the rest of the L.A. region and the Orange County region. Imagine if we preach the gospel to people... Uh, about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and then these people who are using their bodies in ways that, um, that saddens us, that ought to sadden us, and it is, a, is a way that God clearly says is not good for that person. They begin to see, wow, you know what? I actually begin to come to understand faithfulness more. I come to understand how God has made my body and how I'm going to give that to a person and how that in a marriage relationship actually reflects the love that Jesus Christ has for his bride, faithful. Passionate, purposeful, particular to that person. So we want to be sent out with this wonderful gospel. And I pray that that would happen over the course of the weeks and months here. At First Baptist the Heist. So Christ is our aim. Christ is our end. And it's this that gives Paul so much joy. To see his brothers and sisters exalting Christ in a way even that, that shows itself in Christian partnership. You're going out on mission trips. Let me help you to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. And because he sees that, he then can assure them of their faith. And this is point number three. Christian partnership provides confidence in the faith. That's verse six. Look look what he says. He experiences the partnership. And then he assures them of their faith. Look in verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he thinks back again to their conversion, and he says that the God who began that in you, he's going to bring it to completion. You see how that doesn't that makes sense only if, if the aim and end is Christ? I actually don't think it makes very much sense if without that aim and end. Because he's saying there, look, you partner with me, and I experience your partnership, and I love it. Naturally, you would think that he would go on and talk about the partnership that they had between men, right? But then he says, no, God, who began this good work in you, is going to bring it to completion. He wants them to have confidence in the faith because he sees them partnering with him. And really partnering with God, having fellowship with God. He says, God is going to work out your salvation at the day of Christ. He's going to bring it to completion, this theme is actually going to come up later on, um, especially in chapter 2. But for now, it's interesting to note that one's life actions, life's actions, reveal the genuineness of one's faith. One's life's actions reveal the genuineness of one's faith. If they didn't care about Christ... <clears throat> If they did not care about the things of Christ, he wouldn't be able to say this, right? He wouldn't be able to say, the God who began this work in you, as I have seen happen, he's going to bring it to completion. Instead, if he actually, if he didn't see them embracing Christ as the aim and the end, he would say something more like John says in 1 John. He says, you walk in darkness, and while you might claim to have fellowship with Christ, with God, you're a liar. That's what it says in First John. Those are, those are really hard-hitting words. But he is confident of their faith because he sees them loving. And we're going to come back to this later on in the prayer when he prays for them. The fourth aspect. So the third one, the one we just covered, Christian partnership provides confidence in the faith. The fourth aspect is Christian partnership commits to love. Christian partnership commits to love. This is verse 7. He says, It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. You listen to those words? I hold you in my heart. I wish uh, more of our Hispanic folks were here. I think this applies. You know, the concept of machismo. Um, Here, Paul is a man's man. He is in jail for the gospel. And yet, at the same time, he he has no problem expressing to these Christians, I hold you in my heart. It clearly applies to Chinese community as well, because we aren't so good. I say we, representing the whole billion of us. Um, We aren't so good at expressing genuine affection and it's not only Chinese communities it's it's all sorts of communities but here he says I hold you in my heart he says God is my witness so you all take this seriously that's what he says how I yearn for you all but like the partnership here this love that they're experiencing isn't just you know niceness that, that they share together it's not just niceness this is what he says I yearn for you all with the affection, the very affection, the very affection that led Christ to take on flesh, the very affection that led Christ to die on the cross. He says, I yearn for you with that same affection. That's kind of, that's kind of shocking. It should be shocking, but actually it's completely biblical, completely biblical. He's really just fulfilling Jesus commands so jesus says in john 15 verse 12 and 13 he says this is my commandment that you love one another as i have loved you greater love has no one than this that someone lays down his life for his friends and what david prayed is exactly right jesus christ is that great friend he is the friend of friends the one who lays down his life for sinners in fact It's amazing that the way that we love each other is an embodiment or or, or we personify. In other words, we live out in human form the very love of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. The spirit of Christ changes our desires. Then we begin to love like Christ. So the way that we all love one another here. It represents in human form the very love of Jesus. It's incredible. We now can love and live in a holy way, in a Christ-like way. And here Paul is doing just that, just as Christ loved him, so then he loves these Christians. He yearns for them with the very affections with for Jesus. And in fact, he is laying down his life for them, isn't he? He's in jail, a few years away from being executed for Jesus Christ. Later on in Philippians, he says that that, that church is his crown. It is his joy. He, he so loves them and has embraced Christ's aim and purpose that he, he's willing to lay down his life for them, to see them stand before God before the day of Christ, on the day of Christ. So to summarize, first, Christian partnership is joy-producing. Christian partnership is Christ-exalting. Christian partnership provides confidence in the faith. And Christian partnership commits to love. And really, these are all intertwined with one another. It's not like, in the verses at least, he takes one and then he moves on and clearly cuts it off and moves on to the next one. They're actually all intertwined. And it kind of leads up to what we look at next. So the first four aspects sort of all climax. They all intertwine so clearly. They developed this strongest web. We could say in the next point, Christian partnership is prayer generating. Christian partnership is prayer generating. This is in verses nine to eleven. So right here, this prayer is sort of like the practical outworking of aspects one to four. So he knows that he, we know that he prays all of his prayers with joy. So in this prayer, he's going to pray. He's going to pray with joy. We've seen how their partnership is Christ exalting. We see that going to happen right here. He's going to pray that that would continue. Paul sees their partnership in the gospel and he affirms them building their confidence, right? He wants that confidence to continue. He prays for it as we're going to see. And then he prays that their love towards God and their love towards people would grow and grow. And then he demonstrates his love for the people by praying for them. So this is a practical outworking of everything we've looked at so far. Verse 9, look there. This is the prayer. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Here, Paul prays that their love would be, as, I sum, as I've summarized it, a godly love, a guided love, and then a Godward love. He prays that their love will be a godly love, a guided love, and a Godward love. Let's look first at the godly love. Did you, he, he prays there in verse 9. He begins his prayer. I pray that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And then the question is, okay, why? This isn't just a prayer for love. He prays that so that it says, there's that reason, or because, you may approve, or so, so that you may approve what is excellent. So that you may approve what is excellent. There, that word approve, you can think about like, um, it's like a, a, a money metaphor, the original word. <clears throat> and if one is going to approve something, it's like they approve money. So they test it to see whether or not it's genuine or not. So he prays that they, their love would abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that they might test something, approve what is excellent. I, I love that language, approve the excellent things. He says, I pray that you would be able to exclude the lesser things and determine the excellent things, the superior things, and be able to prioritize those things and to chase after them, love them. Because they are godly things. And we see this later, played out later on in, in uh, chapter 4, verse 8. You don't have to turn there, but listen to this now. Here he's, he talks about the excellent things. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things, Philippians. He prays that they would their love would abound more and more. So that they would be able to approve the excellent things that is Christ and things that are associated with Jesus Christ. Well, the question is, well, how exactly is that going to happen? Let's back up one verse. How is that going to happen? He prays that well, he prays that something would accompany their love. He says, I pray that your love would abound with knowledge and discernment. So here this isn't an unbound love. This isn't a reckless love. This is a bounded love, a guided love. He prays that the love would be a godly love. Now he prays that the love will be a guided love. This is a guided love informed by knowledge and then all discernment. So knowledge, you can think there that's a the mental grasp of things that are of God. Godly things. And then discernment there, that's the ability to make godly decisions or to steer a godly course in this life. When it comes to loving God, moral things. So, there, love, we, it's impossible there to approve what is excellent unless you have the knowledge and discernment guiding your love. Interesting, isn't that? Isn't that uh, there the, what he writes? Some people, they tend to say, <clears throat> you know, I just want to love Jesus, but, you know, when it comes to deep Bible study and what, you know, the intricacies of the Bible or even theology, I don't really care about those things. I just want to love Jesus. <clears throat> forget theology. To me, I don't know what to make of, of that kind of statement when you compare it to this kind of verse. I pray that your love would about more and more with knowledge and all discernment, he says. You, so you think about relationships, right? Only the knucklehead would sit down with a girl that he likes and say, you know what? I, I just, I, I like you. I think I love you. I just want to spend time with you. But you know what? I don't really care about what you like. I don't care about the facts behind that. I don't care about your desires. I don't care about your upbringing. I don't care about all the things that make you who you are. I just want to be with you. What girl would feel loved by that man? But the guy who sits down and is able to know all the intricacies of that girl's background, her history, her likes, her dislikes, The things that she takes pleasures in, her hobbies. You know, that better equips the man to love that woman. The same thing goes with God. The more we know about God, the better we are to love him. The better we are to honor him, to serve him, to live for him. He prays that they would have a godly love. And he prays that that love would be guided, informed by the truths of God. He also prays that they would have a, a God word love, a Godward love. So we can ask the question, what is the result of having a godly love that is guided? What's the result? Look there in verse nine again. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And here's the reason so that you may approve what is excellent. And here's the result. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So it results in them being pure and blameless before God, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. So it's not from themselves, but from God himself, because he's going to be the one who's going to bring it to completion and then all to the praise and glory of God. Do you see what Paul is ultimately looking at? He's not ultimately looking at their purity and their holiness. He's looking towards the day when the king would return, when the groom would come to get his bride, the church. He's concerned that they would be ready, too, ready for when Christ returns in purity, in all holiness. And Ephesians says that uh, it is Jesus Christ himself who is making his bride pure and holy without blemish. He wants them to be focused on God and what he's doing. So he wants them, even though he's already seen evidence that they've already adopted the aim, purposes, and priorities of Christ, he prays that that would happen so much more. He prays that you, you, they would continue to do that. They would continue to live out their faith even though he already sees them doing so he prays that that would just grow in abundance and he prays us all to the glory and praise of god that's what paul labors for and that's what makes verse six make sense in the context i see the evidence of your faith you partnering with me and i thank god he who began that work is going to bring it to completion at the day of jesus christ It's interesting there, he knows, right, in verse 6, he says that God will do it. And yet he prays that God would do it. Interesting, isn't it? He knows for a fact that God will bring it to completion, and yet he prays that those people would grow in love, even though he already knows God's going to do it. That's actually a biblical prayer. God is sovereign, and he uses our prayers to accomplish his purposes. He determines that that's the way it should work. That Theme also will come out again in chapter two. So this prayer is the practical outworking of everything we've looked at. We know he prays all of his prayers with joy, and he prays that they would exalt Christ, have a godly, Godward love. He offers confidence, even though he's encouraged by their outworking of their faith. He prays that that would continue, abounding. Being able to navigate their course in life. So that they're always fixed on Christ. And then he commits to love them. Clearly he commits to love them through his own prayer. And he demonstrates his love by this prayer. So in effort to apply this passage to our lives. I want to conclude. Um, thinking about our own prayer lives here. Because this here in the context of this passage. Is. Is. The example, this is how he shows his love, how he partners with the Philippian church, how he encourages them to be Christ focused, Christ centered, Christ exalting. You can think about that father and those two children. And you think about um, if the father is who he is, why aren't we running towards running to the father on behalf of our wandering brothers? on behalf of our failing brothers, on behalf of our stumbling brothers, we ought to, if God is who he says he is, we should be taking their burden and saying, Father, look, help. Help me help them. If the Father is really the Father who gives good gifts to his people. So there's tons of application in terms of our prayer life. Um, The first thing. Many times uh, people pray... About what kind of stuff? I think, I think a, lot of peop, a lot of people pray about temporal stuff and physical stuff. So temporal stuff is like you know major decisions that we need to make. So we are going to go look at a house later on, and hopefully it's going to come through. So we're praying that that would come through. Um, that, that would be an example of, of a temporal thing, major life decisions or something like that. Another thing that we pray about is physical stuff. So if I got an achy back, I'm going to pray oftentimes that this thing would go away and that I'd be able to function better. Um, Or for me, my shoulder, I pray that that would go away so I might be able to play with my kids like I would normally do. Uh, But oftentimes our prayers don't sort of rise from above sort of the earthly level. You know, we, we just pray that those things would go away so that we might feel better, so that our lives would go on like we want them to. But I think it serves us best... And it glorifies God better to pray the temporal things in light of the eternal. So if you're taking notes, write that down. Temporal in light of the eternal. And then the physical in light of the spiritual. So it serves us best. It glorifies Christ more to pray the temporal things in light of the eternal. And then to pray about the physical things in light of the spiritual. So here are some examples. Right, If I'm pr- praying for the temporary things, let's take money. I need money. Um, we all need it. But what does God say about this money? Do we just want to pray that we would get some money so that we'd be able to pay the rent, so that we'd be able to buy nice Christmas, Christmas gifts for other people or even to give it away? We should pray something so much more than that. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, it says that, we are not to put our trust in money, but our trust in God. He also says that even though I might be tempted to trust in money and love it, I actually don't have to fear it if I don't get fear circumstances if I don't get it. I ultimately don't even need to fear poverty because God has promised to never leave me nor forsake me. So I can, we can, should pray that we might receive more money so that we might be able to give it away or to steward it rightly. Or so that we might be able to better take care of our family. Those are good things. But we can also pray that we would not be able to trust in those things, but ultimately trust in God. And if we don't get it, we'd be able to say, Lord, thank you for teaching me to trust in you, even though it's difficult. Take physical things that we pray about, right? Paul himself prayed about physical things. We all should be praying about physical things. So if you aren't, something's kind of wrong with you. Paul prays that this thorn would be removed from him three times in 2nd Corinthians 12. He, He genuinely wants to be rid of this physical illness. But then he says, but God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. God had chosen not to remove that physical ailment from him so that his power would be displayed. His sufficiency would be displayed in that weakness. So if I'm discouraged with some sort of physical ailment, I can pray that the Lord would remove it. That's biblical. But I can also pray, oh, Lord Jesus, if you do not take it away, cause my heart to be satisfied in you alone because your grace is sufficient without doubt. We can pray, Lord Jesus, even in my weakness, display your power. And in fact, that is what happens right to the watching world. If we are struggling with some sort of physical ailment, they see us and they say, wow, you know what? Pastor Rick, he has a really bad back, but he's always boasting in Christ. He is so satisfied in Jesus. That is weird. And I want that. Or they might say, man, Pastor Rick, he's not saying if I only had a better back, then then I would be great. Then the world would be fantastic. And they say, oh, no, Pastor Rick, he doesn't. Want ultimately that he said, he believes in jesus and this grace that god has given him and he says that wow god's grace is sufficient for me not my health that's weird but i want that so there are two examples of praying the temporal in light of the eternal and praying the physical in light of um, the spiritual thing so let's aim at doing that in our prayers for ourselves and in our prayers for one another a second thing, another encouragement, we can pray Paul's prayers. Are you guys struggling with your prayer life? You know, you're, you're getting distracted oftentimes. What should you pray about? Why not pray Paul's prayers? I mean, when was the last time that we prayed that our Christians, bro, Christian brothers and sisters love would abound more and more? And not only abound more and more, but abound according to the word of God. Abound with all knowledge and all discernment. When was the last time we prayed that that would happen so that they would be pure and blameless when Christ comes? That they would be ready for the return of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from Christ for the glory of God. So why not adopt the priorities of Paul in his prayers as our own? So I encourage you just take those prayers and pray that for somebody. Pray that for the very people here in this church. I think we have a wonderful model here in Paul. Someone who yearns for this church with the affections for Christ. Someone who has adopted the priorities and purposes of Christ. Someone who now shows his partnership and his love by praying for them. And they're wonderful examples of Philippian church and Paul of what it looks like to partner together for the sake of Christ, for the glory of God. So I pray that our study of the book of Philippians, that in it we would be spurred on to greater partnership in the gospel. That we would rejoice with one another. For the sake of Christ. I pray that it would produce. Our partnership would produce joy. That it would be Christ exalting. That it would offer confidence in our faith. That it would cause us to commit to one another. In greater love. And that it would evidence itself. As we labor for one another's faith. In prayer. Let's pray together. Our father in heaven. Lord, we did give you great praise, knowing that you have established fellowship with us through the cross. That even when we were hostile towards you, you still called us into partnership with you. And you've given us this wonderful task to send out the gospel, to be preaching the gospel to everyone that is around us. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that, that, your, that your love would affect the way that we love. We pray, Lord, that First Baptist would be known as a church that loves with the same love of Jesus Christ. Cause our hearts to yearn for one another so that Christ Jesus would be exalted. So that we might be ready for the day when you return. And we pray that that would happen so that you would get all of the glory. And we pray that you would do these things for the sake of your great name. In your name we pray. Amen.